This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. DigitalOcean recently launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve a vast amount of data, such as images and large media files, user-generated content, backups, and logs. Spaces is available for a simple $5 per month price that includes 250 gigabytes of storage and one terabyte of outbound bandwidth. Additional storage is priced at the lowest rate available, one cent per gigabyte transferred and two cents per gigabyte stored. This provides cost savings of up to 10 times along with predictable pricing and no surprises on your monthly bill. Try it for free with a two-month trial by going to do.co slash seradio. Welcome to Software Engineering Radio. My name is Brian Renero. Gregor Hopa is Chief Architect at Allianz, where he is responsible for driving the digital transformation of one of the world's largest insurance companies. He is well known as the co-author of the book Enterprise Integration Patterns and a contributor to 97 Things Every Software Architect Should Know and Best Software Writing. Gregor is a frequent speaker at conferences around the world and is an active member of the IEEE Software Editorial Advisory Board. Gregor was an early guest of Software Engineering Radio, speaking with us in episode 42. Gregor has recently authored a new book titled 37 Things One Architect Knows About IT Transformation, A Chief Architect's Journey, which we will be discussing today. Hello, Gregor, and welcome back to Software Engineering Radio. Hi, Brian. I'm super happy to be on SE Radio again. Thank you so much. Well, to kick off, I'd like to ask a uh, deceptively simple question. Uh, or easy uh, to, for me to articulate question, what is the role of IT architecture? That is actually a very good question and not an easy one to answer. There are about as many answers as they are to the question, you know, what is IT, ar- what is architecture and what does an architect do in the end? In fact, um, I think IEEE maintains a whole website of definitions of software architecture, leave alone IT architecture. What I often try to describe is that if you have a system that a couple of years down the road is still functioning well and is still able to absorb new requirements, that's a sign you probably had a good architecture. Nice. And uh, what is the distinction that we can make between software architecture and enterprise architecture? Mm-hmm. So I would say software architecture is one element of enterprise architecture. Almost all software lives in in a context right it rarely lives in isolation especially in a large enterprise it will be an inter it will be interacting with other systems it will interact with reporting functions it will be subject to things like legal regulations or product launch plans so in the end the architecture of a software system is one element and the it or enterprise architect looks at at bringing some harmony and alignment to all the pieces that are around it this could be the infrastructure that it's running on this could be even organizational considerations right i said or it could be legal legal and commercial considerations so bringing all that together that is really the role of the it architect or the enterprise architect so interesting so it sounds like when you are performing the the role of uh, enterprise architect uh, you're going to have to be involved with teams that beyond what we might normally associate with architecture uh, in strict terms uh, you're going to be interacting with teams that are in engineering uh, operations teams uh, monitoring teams but also legal uh, business teams sales teams so would you say that the role of an enterprise architect is is a more collaborative role in its nature it's definitely a facilitating and a collaborative role in the end of course it is the architect's job to make a decision or a recommendation on the overall system architecture and of course in order to do so you need to be in touch with the various stakeholders and group and get as much input as you can so you find a a good balance between all the different factors that that come to play and most importantly avoid traditional pitfalls where a 
beautiful software architecture was developed for a stateless, highly scalable cloud native system. And in the end, some legal or data privacy consideration was neglected and the system can never go live. So in the end drawing, you know, that kind of bridge between the different constituents, that is a key role of the architect. And you're absolutely right. This involves engaging with different kind of teams sometimes in a, in a consulting role, but more in a facilitating role to, to arrive at a joint decision. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so within the, uh, the organization, the role of the architect, where, where is that person within an organization? To whom does the, the architect report and, and who may report to the, the enterprise architect? Oh, very good question. So different companies have a different setup for the enterprise architect or sometimes the chief architect, which is my title. So I, in fact, actually report to our divisional CEO. So I don't report purely into the IT. And I believe that is a reflection that that architecture at this scale is not a pure IT topic. For example, many of the recent advances we have in architecture, you know, let it be cloud computing, let it be DevOps style development, big data analytics, like you know, all the kind of cool stuff we are recently working on, all these have significant organizational implications. So let's say you have a fully automated tool chain and you're basically sitting in DevOps heaven. If you need 25 approvals you know, over a quarter to get some software in production, all that brand new technology doesn't help you at all. So in the end, my reporting line reflects that, that the big technological advances that we're dealing with these days have organizatorial aspects, and that's why I'm actually reporting to the CEO. It will vary, though, in different companies where typically the architect is an IT function, and the chief architect might, for example, report to the CIO, the chief information officer. Then the interesting question becomes, where does the chief information officer report to? Because this can tell you a lot about what is the view of the role that IT plays in the enterprise. But I think we'll come back to that later when we talk about the topic of IT transformation. Well, actually, I think that's a great segue. Uh, I'd like to discuss that because at that level, uh, given the nature of the role of an enterprise architect with all the teams and with, with whom you must interact and and the restructure within the organization it sounds like the, the architect plays a big role into the organization itself uh not just the uh not just the architecture of infrastructure and software and, or services together so your book is titled uh, uh 37 things one architect knows about it transformation so may i ask what is it transformation mm-hmm. Very well. And from the little bit tongue in cheek title, you can tell that the book is really very much about what I've been doing in the last couple of years. And this is driving IT transformation from the perspective of an architect. So it's really 37 episodes out of my my daily life, if you wish. Well, why are we dealing with IT transformation? It's quite simple. If you look at the technology landscape out there, it's quite obvious that in the last five to 10 years, things have changed dramatically and not just in the smartphone we hold in our hands, but also in the demands on enterprise IT. Digital companies tend to operate quite differently to a traditional IT shop. In the past, for an IT shop, it was, you know, it was acceptable that it takes weeks, a month, or sometimes a year to provision a single server. Software updates were rarely done, right? You know the old slogan, never touch a running system. Once things were running, you, know, you leave them alone as long as you can. The digital world works very differently. The digital works, works of, world works of what I call economies of speed. They release software quickly. They get feedback cycles. They modify and refine all the time. Now, businesses that can operate in that fashion put pressure on traditional businesses. Now, that pressure relates also to the demands on those traditional businesses' IT. Right? The business will ask, well, why does it take us so long? Or why is it so expensive to deploy a new piece of software? Why can Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft do X and we cannot? So in the end, the IT has to respond to those demands. And that's what drives IT transformation. 
And when do you recognize that uh, a transformation is necessary? In in some cases, it sounds like what you're describing is a desire to achieve a, a degree of flexibility and uh, a degree of responsiveness to the business concerns. At what point do you, do you, does an architect maybe responsible for triggering an IT transformation or recognizing when that's necessary within an organization? So I, I teach a lot of workshops and we actually played with this thought is like, are there enterprises that don't have to worry about digital disruption or digital transformation at all? Like are there business where you say, I keep doing the same thing I've always been doing and I'll be fine in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And in the end, we had a hard time coming up with any. The the sort of most funny, ironic one that somebody mentioned was a funeral home. Right? It says, oh, they don't have to worry about digital disruption, IT transformation. But in the end, we even debunked that idea because if you think about it, today, folks have a notion of a digital legacy Right, like your parents have photos online on Facebook or Flickr, people pass away, who takes over their accounts and who can maintain the digital legacy. So even the sort of seemingly endlessly far away topic of, of, of funeral homes, right, and, and dealing with sort of very different aspects of life, right, those are even subject to digital disruption and therefore to digital digital transformation. So if as an architect you have a feeling that digital transformation doesn't impact you, I'll A, really challenge you to think about whether this is true. And if you're sure you are, let me know because I'm really looking for an example. So it sounds like uh, that this is one of the cases, the benefit of having an architect devoted to this perspective is is very important, is, is to think of these aspects or these cases where the uh, uh, handling future future changes, as you say, with the the funeral home, like who handles that material, who handles that necessary uh, those digital assets, might not be something that other teams in the organization and engineering team is is focusing on intently. So they might, right? Because the the project teams that build individual software, they will have some idea that there's there's new demands, that there's a need, as you say, for more responsiveness, more speed in from from the business side. However, they're often in a traditional IT shop, they're stuck in a certain context, right? They depend on the infrastructure, right? So if they can't get a server, right, they won't be fast, they won't be responsive. Now they can think about moving into the cloud. Their legal might come and say, oh, this is personal information. Maybe we wouldn't like to have this in the cloud, or if it's in the cloud, it must be inside the EU or inside North America, right? And that's where you see that, that these kind of transitions often touch on a much broader scope than an individual application or project team. And this is where the role of the IT or the enterprise scale IT architecture becomes so critical in getting this transformation underway. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like uh, that that kind of a transformation can be done uh, driven by business requirements or business forces. Uh, How how is it, uh, what would you define the boundaries between business concerns and and IT and how does an enterprise architect traverse those two areas of business and uh, IT? I often say that the business doesn't care about architecture and I say this as the chief architect and the interesting answer to that or correlate to that is and they shouldn't. Right? What you do with the architecture, what the system is designed like in the end, that is really IT's or the architect's business. What the business does care a lot about, though, is how the system behaves. You know, can it absorb a sustained rate of change? Does it scale? Is it secure? So in the end, what behaviors or characteristics your architecture leads to is immensely relevant to the business. And understanding the business's priorities is one of the key factors for the architecture. What keeps architecture so interesting and the job of the architect so interesting is that it's all about balances and trade-offs. You can't have everything at once, right? A, a more 
maintainable system might be slightly more complex. A more highly performing system might be more difficult to understand. A more secure system might have a larger footprint. It's all about trade-offs and balances. And in the end, you know, IT has one purpose. IT's purpose is to deliver value to the business. Because you know, the business in the end brings the money and allows the company to exist. So the architect needs to really understand what the business's priorities are. Now, the business doesn't come in and say, here are 20 architectural needs that we have, and we thought them all through, and they're sorted one through 20. Right? In the end, this is part of the discovery process. So I would expect an architect to have a fairly good understanding of the business side. Like, what are the market forces? Um, if you work in an international company, where's the money being made? Where are the cash cows? Where are the growing markets? Where are the opportunities? That is also part of the job of an architect. So in that process of discovery where the architect is uh, interfacing with the business layer, understanding where the priorities are, what the market forces are, what is the cadence by which the, the architect should be doing that? Uh, how often and how regularly should the architect be speaking and syncing with the business layer? Mm. Yeah, this is probably one of the most difficult um, aspects of being an architect in this role, because in the end, many different lines of communication run together. And the value of the architect really lies into bringing those together and balancing them, right? bringing this into a cohesive solution. Now, the biggest danger is since you're dealing with so many aspects that you lose focus, that, that you get distracted, right? Because you could spend all your day on the business side. You can spend all your day in the infrastructure. You could spend all your day with the application teams. You can also spend all day with the vendors telling you about new great technology they have developed. So in the end, I've never found a, a recipe for how to balance that except to do it in a in a very self-aware calibration cycle driven by a clear goal. And the clear goal has to be business value that is being delivered. And, and that has to be the function you optimize and calibrate by. And then it's a daily struggle, if you wish, or a daily balancing act to find the, the right cadence to, to interact with the different teams. This is really what makes the job interesting, but also challenging. Yeah, I, I bet. And fascinating as well. The uh, is it also a responsibility of the architect to articulate that value uh, that you're trying to achieve to teams like engineering and operations and development? Um, the, the architect needs to provide that visibility or that vision down to those parts of the organization. I think it certainly helps. How much an architect has to do that depends a little bit on the project setup. If, if your IT in the software delivery is very close to the business, like they interact very closely with a product owner, for example, then they generally have a very good feeling for the value that their system provides. If that is, is not given, then I would say it's appropriate for an architect to inject a little bit more. I find when I look at software projects, it's often amazing how much effort is made to build things that are in the end not needed or provide very little value. And there's a famous quote, you know, optimizing things that are not needed at all is one of the you know, silliest things to do. Unfortunately, software delivery projects are often burdened very much with, with doing that. To the extent that an architect can help or inject a little bit there, it might be helpful, but I would be cautious to not interfere if there's a very healthy relationship with the business already. Interesting. So how is it that an architect can lead transformation? Um, I imagine that a transformation can be, there's risks associated with transformation, IT transformation, but it's determined that it's necessary. What is the architect's uh, role in leading that transformation? Mm -hmm. Sure. Transformation is all about change, right? It's about actually dramatic change when we say transformation. And of course, change bears risk. I always remind folks, though, that no change also bears risk. You know, that's the lesson learned from the Kodaks and the blockbusters of the world, right, who did not respond to digital disruption. And hence, the, the risk of, of no change can be the risk of, of losing the business. So in the end, right, it's, it's about realizing that the change is inevitable. Now, the architect's role in that, I would say, is lives on multiple dimensions, right? There's the technology aspect, 
right? In the end, the IT needs to be able to deliver the basic services that the business needs to compete in a digital world. Right? I mentioned earlier, I call this the economies of speed. It's about taking out friction out of the system. Right? And this can be, if you, if you go down into the, into the detail, what I call the architect elevator, right? if you take this down into the engine room, you know, delivering software faster and getting rid of friction involves things like methods, involves methods you know, like, like DevOps approaches and lean approaches, but it also involves classic technology. You know, this can be automation, you know, this is the you know, Ansible Chef Puppet Salt kind of uh, domain. This can be Docker containers and packaging. So it goes down very much deep in the technology with a clear view of what value it brings to the business, and that is speed of deployment. Not forgetting organizational aspects, right? Because if you have a fully automated continuous delivery pipeline, but you need to run around 12 departments to get approvals, and this will take you three months, you still haven't made your organization faster. So in the end, it's the combination between delivering the, the hard tools, the technological basis for, for faster soft delivery, plus the organizational enablement to it, I think that combination is what makes the architect so important in an IT transformation scenario. Yeah, uh, we uh, had discussed in, uh, we had an episode 287 with Neil Ford uh, discussing uh, success skills for architects. And um, you're, you're, that, during that conversation, that episode, your, your analogy of the elevator, the elevator metaphor was also mentioned. Uh, can you, uh, uh, we're talking about the elevator, of course, being that, that there's different layers in, a, in an organization and the architect rides that elevator up and down and, and must be able to communicate with different uh, uh, people at, at those elevators, sometimes being able to go very low level uh, into uh, in engineering disciplines, but also uh, communicating how the architecture meets the, the value, uh, the business uh, value, provides a business value to uh, higher level executives. Um, soft skills sound like a very important aspect of the leadership uh, that's required uh, in an IT transformation. And I would imagine that's you would feel that's a major factor of the capability to communicate is a major factor. So yeah, the architect elevator is really the key metaphor of, of, of my book. In the end, I was actually thinking whether I should call it the architect elevator and I opted for a little bit, you know, the longer tongue-in-cheek title. Where does the elevator metaphor originate? Large organizations are hierarchical, right? And often this is an aspect we don't like so much because you, know, you need to go to the boss, the boss's boss, the boss's boss to get a decision. But in the end, hierarchies work well. Otherwise, these companies wouldn't be so successful. They work well, though, in a relatively static world. It's just like a hierarchy is like layering. You know, one of the most you know, widely used architectural patterns, I would say, right, is layering we know very well. A hierarchy is a layered organization and it has all the same benefits that layering does in IT architecture. It hides abstraction, it's division of labor, division of concerns, clean interfaces. You can take one layer out and replace it with another layer. Sometimes we call this IT outsourcing, right? So there's many good reasons why they're layered. Layered architectures have disadvantages as well, though. For something to travel end-to-end, -end for a whether this is a request in a technical system that has to go from the user interface all the way to the database, or whether it's a strategic decision in an organization that has to be translated into an IT implementation, it has to diverse many, many different layers. And that's like a skyscraper. There's just a lot of floors in this organization, right? Sometimes there's a hundred floors and up in the penthouse where you know the, the company leadership sits, when they define a strategy, when they see something on the horizon and say, we should be doing X. In a traditional organization, that topic X goes to the next floor down and the next floor and the next floor. It goes to the upper management, the upper middle management, the middle management, the other lower management. And by the time it arrives in the engine room where actual software is being delivered, you have two major problems. One, it takes a long time. And we already learned that in the digital world, right, in the economies of speed, being slow is, is, is not a very good thing. And B, it has the effect of the telephone game. Right, where the story that started once in the top floors, by the time it arrives in the basement, is probably a quite different story. 
Hence the analogy of the elevator. We need to stop passing things down floor by floor. It's nice and convenient because you only have to worry about what's going on on your floor. But because of these dramatic downsides, the model is no longer appropriate in a digital world. So we need somebody to move faster between the different levels. And I feel the architects are the folks who are best equipped because generally they have a good technical background, but they also have the communication and social skills to interact at the upper floors of the penthouse. So that has really become the, the guiding metaphor for the role of an architect in IT transformation. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask more about uh, some more questions with regard to how an architect both must adjust to the organization they find themselves in and also influence the organization. To what degree does the architect have responsibility for setting the organizational architecture? It, it, it occurs to me in many cases that the IT architecture may be dictated by the organization itself, the enclosing organization. What is the responsibility of the IT architect to influence the organization itself? So I sometimes joke that I'm actually the organizational engineer disguised as the chief architect. In the end, the two topics are inseparable and you know, the most you know, famous sort of incarnation of that is the well-known Conway's law that in the end, you know, the architecture of a system resembles the organizational structure. And if you look to some extent, you know, what we have seen with microservices, we often call that the reverse Conway, which means you choose a system architecture that allows you to, to have a matching organizational structure, the one of smaller teams and independent releases. So the two are very closely linked. And that's why an architect these days has to concern himself or herself with organizational aspects. I often say that all the problems we had that we can solve with technology alone, we kind of pretty much solved, right? If you look at, um, let's say, like some of the open source project over many, many folks are speaking at conferences, etc. It used to be very developer focused. Well, we worked on IDEs and a lot of open source like Eclipse and a lot of tooling and continuous integration came about. And now if you see that where people put their thoughts and, and their energy it's a very much about runtime, right? So people talk much more about how do I get software in production? Or how do I run the software? This is all the cloud Docker runtime infrastructure. And with that, they get closer to what organizational structure do I need? Because now the view that we have is much more of an end-to-end -end view, right? When you look at an ID, it's more like, okay, how do I code this piece of software? But when you start talking about continuous integration, continuous delivery, cloud runtimes, now you're thinking about how can I get the software more quickly into the hands of a customer. And with this broadening of the scope, organizational aspects suddenly step into the foreground. And this is the example I gave before, right? A full automated CD pipeline doesn't help you anything if you need 15 approvals between different departments to get budget, to get authorization, to get legal sign-off, to get security sign-off, etc. So you're not going to be spared from the organizational topics. Yeah, and we had covered uh, a aspects of uh, uh, infrastructure as code uh, in episode 268 with Keith Morris. But to d discussing this more uh, uh, about uh, IT architecture or infrastructure, should operations teams, as a result, as the advent of uh, infrastructure as code uh, coming into the industry, should operations teams now be adopting the practices and methodologies of used in software development now that there's this this change occurring so operations teams face a lot of pressure these days right on one hand they see all this transformation going on particularly on the cloud computing side right? a lot of internal IT transformation are seeing the infrastructure that they manage move off into the cloud and often worried actually about their existence. So it's it's not an easy job to be in because for one, you need to deal with production incidents, but B, people also see the writing on the wall and say, well, will this at some point or run at near Amazon, Google, Microsoft's cloud? My view on this is that operations is actually more important than ever. If you look at the operational demands of modern systems, it's actually quite amazing. I mean, everybody wants 24 seven, unlimited scalability, updates without any downtimes, etc., etc. So these are all operational concerns. 
So in the end, operations is as relevant and more relevant than ever, but there's one caveat. What operations looks like has changed. And that is very much to what you mentioned through the software-defined infrastructure. Traditional manual operations has just stands no chance to keep up with the demands of the business and the demands of the application development teams. You, you can't have continuous deployment, red-green deploys you know, many times a day without any downtimes if there are any manual processes involved. A, out of consideration for speed, and B, out of consideration of quality. I have one chapter in my book. I call it, never send a human to do a machine's job. One of the matrix quotes, but it's 100% true in operations. As soon as you have humans involved, the error rate goes up tenfold or hundredfold. Humans are great at creative tasks, at creating new things, ideas. Humans are inherently bad at performing repetitive tasks. And nowhere is this more obvious than in the software development or software delivery. To me, this is actually one of the, the sort of ironies of, of software delivery, right? How did, how did IT get big in the business, right? Why do we have large IT departments? Because we automated the business, right? The business, you know, I worked for an insurance company. What did the business used to do? They used to write everything on paper and then shuffle paper from left desk to right desk. They do huge calculations for risk models by hand on paper. And we have automated this all. That's why we exist, right? Because we've, we've gained enormous efficiencies for the business. But if you look at the way software used to be delivered, Right? It was sort of manual craft work. Somebody copies files, a little patch here and there, a little configuration over here. Right, It was basically we were manufacturing software the way the business manufactured 50 years ago. Now, with DevOps and you know, software-defined infrastructure and infrastructure as a code, that has rapidly changed and it's leading to a full automation of many of the infrastructure concerns. So that's fantastic, right? It takes a lot of the, the friction out. As always, there's one catch, and it comes back to our topic of, of organizational management. Software-defined infrastructure or infrastructure as a code is much more than scripting, right? You can write a little script, a little shell script, you know, a little Ansible, whatever have you, right, to automate some of your tasks. And at the surface, you might think, oh, look, now my infrastructure is software-defined because, remember, a piece of software does that, that, that does what I did by hand before. That is a very small step, though, and you're really missing the, the major point to, to transition from you know, a little scripting, a little bit automation to really software-defined infrastructure. It's all about adopting software best practices in this context. And that means things like version control, things like testing, things like collaboration, things like continuous deployment. That's where you transition into really software-defined infrastructure. And, and those is a mindset, that is a mindset that is much closer to a software development mindset. And you can apply this to your infrastructure. And ultimately, you will find that by using the same mindset along the whole software delivery lifecycle, from coding the features to deploying the software into production, you take an enormous amount of friction out of the system. And that is exactly what allows you to compete with the digital giants. So it'll, it's the, going to be the case that we would predict that operations teams are going to adopt more and more of the best practices of software development that have come from that area. So it definitely sounds like uh, uh, operations teams will be adopting the methodologies uh, developed in, with regard to software development earlier. Are these teams going to become more tightly coupled in uh, the operation team is going to be... Uh, have to become more tightly coupled in support of the software teams that they're supporting or managing? Yes and no. I think they'll have to think much more alike and also interact more. On the other hand, I think a solid division of responsibility, clean interfaces are a key aspect of it. Yeah, take cloud computing as an example. You know, the big cloud providers, you know, the Amazon, Google, Microsoft of the world, right? They do operations. But you never interact with any of the people that do operations there, right? It's fantastic. It's all done through self-service APIs on the end. It's interesting, right? People talk about DevOps, 
right? And DevOps sort of meaning bringing Dev and Ops closer together. And I would say from a tooling and mindset perspective, that is really the essence of, of DevOps, right? Taking the friction out of the system and being able to get software into production quickly. That's my, my favorite definition of, of DevOps. It's actually from Lan Bass's book, right? DevOps for, for Architects. However, that doesn't mean they need to be part of one team or you know sit together and have a beer together all the time, right? This can mean that they have the same overall goal and the overall mindset, but still fairly distinct responsibilities. Give you an example from my daily life. You know, we built a private cloud runtime platform. You know, that's a part of what we did as the architecture team. And obviously we live very much at the, at the intersection between development and, and operations and infrastructure. At the same time, responsibilities are very clearly separated. If the platform doesn't run, our problem. If the platform runs but the application doesn't, your problem. Now, a division of responsibility doesn't have to be a blame game like it used to be, right? The operation says, hey, server's up, you know, what do you want? An application says, oh, I don't have any bugs, what do you want? And I think that taking that finger pointing, that blaming, that aspect out, that what makes the essence between getting operations and development teams more closely to make sure they have aligned as, as opposed to conflicting goals. If you think about classic operations versus development, what is development's job? To get as many changes into production as possible. Well, what was operations job? Well, to keep stable operations. And one way to do that is to get as few changes into production as possible. Never touch a running system. Now, the DevOps approach gives them the same mindset. And that is with a high degree of automation and a software mindset. You know, unit testing, version control, tight team collaboration, etc. You can, you know, have your cake and eat it too. You can, you or eat your cake and have it too, right? You can push changes into production rapidly and frequently without jeopardizing operational stability. And, and that's really the essence of, of DevOps. It's not about making one team out of it, but to have them both play their respective role of a new way of developing and delivering software. So it might be the case that like uh, Agile, you had mentioned earlier that Agile had been misunderstood, that uh, documentation, people say I don't document because I'm Agile. This aspect of uh, development and operations or DevOps may have been misunderstood is that you can have these divisions of responsibility, which are or divisions of concern, which can be beneficial for these teams to concentrate on. But the, the real factor, uh, the beneficial factor is to have the communication channels open and understanding open that the teams understand what it is that they need to be working on, what it is that they're supporting mutually. And these new practices of uh, related from infrastructure as code facilitate this kind of cross collaboration, cross communication. Yeah, and this is one of my pet peeves in big IT. Once a buzzword, you know, gets real traction, people start abusing it for everything. As right? so people say, well, we'll make silly quotes like, oh, I don't have documentation because I'm agile, right? I'm doing, you know, I can do X, Y, Z because I'm DevOps. And people just like sit the Dev on the Ops teams next to each other and say, look, now I have DevOps. Here's Dev and Ops, right? So this is unfortunate, right? People always look for the snake oil for the for the magic bullet and, and keep doing that. So this is one of the things I think architects are well equipped to debunk, right? We have the technical depth to say like, hold on, DevOps is more than sitting DevOps next to each other. To your specific question, I think it's about, yeah, it's about communication and mutual understanding, but that's just one aspect. In the end, the DevOps approach makes sure that operations becomes an enabler rather than a disabler. And I gave a classic example that I use in my workshops. Let's say you're an online retailer. When is the most valuable time to push a code change? And sometimes people will say, oh, Sunday morning, 2 a.m. And said, no, that's the safest time. It's not the most valuable time. The most valuable time is right in the Christmas business when you're running the highest traffic because the code change you'll be pushing will either fix a problem that you're having or release a valuable feature to your customers. And the most valuable time to launch that is when you have the most traffic, when you have the most value. Now, you know, I work for a large insurance company. I can tell you exactly what we have around that time. Frozen zone you're not allowed to put anything in production because we're afraid something might break. And this is where 
in the old model, development and operations, as I mentioned, have conflicting goals. And this will be seen by one team as the other team being disabling rather than enabling. Oh, we have a new release of software ready. We would like to deploy this if operations only let us. And operations likewise, well, these guys always push new code. As soon as we have the thing half stable, they push something new and break it again if they could only stop doing that. And the DevOps approach is about operations becoming an enabler for the business. You want to pay or for the development teams, right? So you want to push software every minute? Fine, you can do that because I have continuous delivery. I have my automatic deployment. I have a pass like a platform as a software, as a service infrastructure that allows you to deploy software as often as you like. And you know what? It doesn't harm my infrastructure and it doesn't harm my platform. So in the end, you've created an interface. You created self-service. You become an enabler for the software delivery teams. And now they will thank the operation teams you know, rather than being a blocker and saying, oh, they never let us deploy software. Now we're saying, isn't this fantastic? The operation teams build an infrastructure for us that allows us in a self-service fashion to deploy software whenever we feel like it. And as it might happen, if we deployed something that doesn't work or has issues, we have the level of automation and version control that we can revert very, very, very quickly and can get back into a stable state in minutes or seconds, often without the customer even noticing. And I think that is really the, the big change. And, and people like to latch on to these buzzwords, right? As I said, they say, oh, we're DevOps, DevOps are sitting here because obviously sitting them together is a very easy thing to do. Really transforming, right? And really changing the way the teams interact is much, much harder. So of course, people like to claim the easy route, like to take the easy route and claim the easy success. But of course, unfortunately, that is completely meaningless. Right? It's, it's things like Agile, like Lean, like DevOps, even things like near cloud computing, they're fundamentally transformative. You can't do lip service to them. You know, that comes back to the essence. What an architecture does today has a lot to do with IT transformation. Now, a great aspect of uh, IT transformation, often we might orient ourselves to thinking about the, what the system shall be or, or uh, what uh, the next uh, the next iteration of the uh, development cycle and the features that bring were uh, transforming to a new architecture. But there's a need to discuss the end of a system, the end of a lifespan of a system, the uh, life cycle, uh, which uh, you wish to retire systems. Organizations often orient, when we think about transformations, they're orienting themselves towards uh, migrating to new systems, new ways of handling things. And some of the resistance that we get back, uh, as you've noted, is never touch a working system. But there are times in software lifespans, uh, life cycles, that systems do need to be retired as part of the transformation. When do you identify that a system should be retired? Yeah, system retirement is a is an interesting topic, right? People usually don't like to talk about it as much. I often say it's like talking about a prenup. Yeah, you just fall in love and you're planning your honeymoon, right? You don't want to talk about a prenup. What happens? You know, should we part? And the same is true for software. You're building a new system. You're buying something from the vendor. Everybody is very excited. The last thing you do want to talk about is what actually happens when the system retires. That would be a major fault, though. Well, we major flaw because in the end, we said, you know, the digital world lives off economies of speed. Things move faster. That means also things age faster, right? So you need to think much more about the end of life. So, for example, we guide our architecture by a, by a set of IT characteristics. When we build a system or looking to buy something, what are some of the characteristics that are important to us? And one of them is, for example, data extraction, being able to get the data back out of the system so we can migrate it to the, to the subsequent systems. We spoke early about enterprise architects. I think landscape management is really a key aspect of, of an enterprise architect. Often we say, the job of an enterprise architect is more like that of a gardener, right? It's not the person who makes all the decisions, but it's the person who sort of trims and prunes a little bit here and there because stuff grows by itself all the time, especially the weeds, you know, they grow the fastest. And that is true in the garden as well as in the IT. 
So often the architect's job is not actually so much to create more new things, but actually to prune, to trim, to retain a balance. And it's just like in the garden. If you never do that, you know, suddenly everything will outgrow each other and you'll have a giant, a giant mess. And the same happens in IT. So managing the life cycle, I would say, is actually one on getting rid of stuff, if you want to call it bluntly, is one of the, the key tasks. I have a, you know, if you're looking for a catchy slogan related to this, I often say, right, if you never kill anything, you live among zombies and you know the zombies will eat your brain. And, and while it sounds you know, a little bit funny, it's actually very true in IT. If you don't, if you're not able to, to shut off systems to do end of life, you will spend a majority of IT budget and your IT brain on maintaining old systems. It does eat your brain and you will have no ability to deliver new features. And in the digital world, that's death. That doesn't work. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite uh, metaphors from the from the book is uh, kill, uh, get rid of zombies, otherwise they will eat your brain. Um, how can an architect avoid having that kind of situation occur, that a product lingers in, e in an EOL phase indefinitely? What, what active steps must be done to, or defined, to achieve a complete uh, end-of-life phase? And as with many of the topics that we're discussing today, again, there's an organizational aspect and there's a technical aspect to it. And we're living at, at, at that intersection as an architect. The organizational aspects are really the business needs to have a willingness to let some things go, right? Often we can't retire a system because there is one customer left on the system or we sell life insurance, right? Life insurance hopefully runs a long time, you know, good for the customer. So these customers on the system. Now, if you want to retire that system, it should be allowed to ask obvious questions like, can we just pay out that one customer or that set of customers? Or can we ask them to migrate to another product? They may not want to, but maybe we can make a deal. Maybe we can offer them something. The business will say, oh, you know, that's very difficult. Well, how difficult is it really? How expensive is it? Right? These are all aspects that play directly into the ability to retire in a system. Right? So it must be discussion between business and IT. On the IT side, the best way I have to think about retirement is retirement is just one element of the change cycle, right? You shouldn't think of it as anything unusual. Once a company or an organization embraces the notion that a system is undergoing constant change, retiring a system suddenly will seem much less scary because you're used to the fact that, that you can automate, that you can bring new features, that you can bring changes, that you connect your system to new features, right? So suddenly the idea of taking out some features and slowly winding a system down is also changed just with a different sign on the delta. Instead of adding stuff, you're removing stuff. And once you're used to the fact that you have fully automated testing, you have automated deployment, you suddenly you become much more comfortable with this up to the point where retiring a system is nothing un un unusual. So in the old days, releasing a new piece of software was something very unusual, right? People would do it on the weekend, stay up all night, you know, cross their fingers, light a candle, whatever they do to just make sure this software upgrade or this new release would go well. Well, now we do it on an hourly basis and we often don't even notice when it happens. I think the same has to happen with retiring systems. It used to be like the worst thing that can happen in IT. It just must become normal. Change is normal and retiring a system, shutting down a system is just one incarnation of change. So is it the case that there, there may be a requirement for an organization to become uh, to have an IT transformation, uh, a major IT transformation, but is it the case that some organizations should should be thinking in terms of continuous transformation? Yes, in the end, and I would say that is really the, um, the levels of organizational change you can be at. If you think about, you know, a lot of IT separates change from run, right? Change are the software projects where, you know, change is done, new features are being delivered, and run is separate, meaning run is no change. Right? And we talked about this before, that this is the eternal conflict. But, but it has a meaning at the higher level. It means that in such an organization, change is the unusual state. Right? Like run is the normal state. We're happy when stuff runs. 
and when change has to happen, we get a little bit nervous. It's the, the extraordinary state. That's why there are so many gating and control functions, right? You need to get budgets and budget approvals and reviews and deployment reviews, right? Like we're all dealing with the fact that change is a little bit uncomfortable, that change is sort of the unusual thing. In the digital world, right, if you really want to want to get there, you have to abandon the notion that change is something unusual. And even the word transformation kind of tends to make you think that this is oh, this is something we do sort of once we kind of transform and once we are transformed, we are in a better world. Now, I wish that was so because our job would be much easier. But if you look at the rate of change and the way the world, especially the digital world evolves, there's no sign that change will slow down. So you need to get used to no longer thinking of change as something unusual that has to be contained and checked and controlled into something that is just the normal state. You will have continuous change. And with that, to some extent, you will also have continuous transformation. Yeah, I guess the uh, th that's an interesting aspect is that taking a, an examination of what is the true nature of how an organization performs and delivers code and, and maintains code and delivers value is not so much that you're seeking a steady state of a, a running operation, but you identify, embrace, and enhance the change process. Identifying the change process is actually a key characteristic of the, of the industry. Am I correct in, in that assessment? Yeah, I would say these days it's all about the rate of change you can maintain. There's the famous Jack Welch quote, if the rate of change outside the organization is higher than on the inside, the end is near, right? So building for stability and considering change to be the abnormal case works well in a static case because you know, dealing with change is tricky. It's difficult, right? It's like if you don't have to change, that's always easier. But if the world around you is changing, then it's all about what rate of change you can maintain in an organization. So with that in mind, I, I often say that architects really live on the first derivative. If you have a system or even an organization that doesn't need to change at all, you probably have much less need for architecture and therefore for architects, right? You get it running somehow once and you'll never touch it again. So the rate of change drives architectural needs. Some simple examples. Scaling is a, factor, is a form of change, right? Scaling is a change in load that the system needs to handle and a change in the size of the infrastructure that, that it goes through. That requires architecture. We want horizontal scaling, stateless services, etc. So I really feel that the rate of change is what drives the need for the architect. Now, we live in times of rapid change, so that is good for architects because we're very much needed and our jobs are very exciting because of that. Yeah. I would say also that uh, we uh, also covered uh, a topic in episode 236 with Rebecca Parsons on evolutionary architectures as well. But in this case, of course, the special circumstance that architects find themselves, of course, is, is part of that organizational change. And uh, just as a kind of final thought here, of course, your, your book is full of really helpful metaphors and uh, stories and examples. Even I found that, that, that you're, you're saying that an architect lives in that, that first derivative. Uh, really interesting. Would you say that it's uh, mastery of metaphor is an important characteristic of a successful architect in the idea of uh, interfacing with the organization and providing change to the organization? I wouldn't go quite as far because I think that's a little bit me, myself, my style. I like making these metaphors. So, yeah, it's a book about IT transformation. Yes, in the end, it's full of zombies and Pac-Mans and, and Matrix quotes, right? So I think this is a little bit how, how my brain works. But I think there are some serious aspects to it. If you think about what makes an architect an architect, right? what, what, what can an architect do that maybe other people don't do? Right? You'll quickly find that it's, it's thinking in abstractions, thinking in patterns, thinking in systems. Right? And, you know, this is something that makes an architect a successful architect. 
and and this you know, abstraction, this defining models, that has a little bit to do with metaphors, right? It's the ability to connect different seemingly unconnected things like organizational legal aspects with technical aspects. So in the end, while you know, my metaphors are always a little bit tongue-in-cheek and, and maybe express more my personality, I think that if you think like an architect, you find that that making these these metaphors will will help you in your in your thinking right and it's a natural byproduct if you wish it has one more advantage and that often the metaphors can make things less threatening right it can put a little bit of of humor in this because in the end you have to be clear we don't do transformation scenarios for fun right i mean it's because there's pressure on the business and some businesses will not survive you know the digital transformation right there's a whole graveyard right of of you know bookstores and other traditional businesses that don't exist anymore so this is serious business right this is serious talk also between the departments Right, some departments like operations department may feel that you know they're not needed anymore. I already said I don't believe in that, but a lot of people do feel this. So having some light-hearted metaphors, like often I call you know documenting an architecture, like sketching bank robbers. Right, you ask him what did the person look like, and you draw a picture and refine. I find that these metaphors take a little bit the fear out of the whole thing, and I think this is a really important ingredient into into making people part of a successful transformation. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time uh, and joining us today. Uh, any uh, last aspects or um, things that you wish uh, that our listeners to understand about IT transformation that we have not covered? Yeah, I would say in the end, what I'd, I'd like to give uh, our listeners is that with the advent of the digital world and the associated transformation, the role of the architect has really changed a lot. We used to focus much more on software architecture, but now as we discuss, we're realizing that there's many, many more factors at play particularly organizational aspects. Now, what I'd like to give our listeners, like many of them might think, I'm an IT guy, I'm a technology guy, why do I need to deal with these organizational aspects and I'm not maybe very good at it? It's like politics, it's dealing with people, well, you know, it's it's not what, what I think my profession is. What you'll find there is that the way organizational systems behave is not that dissimilar to the way technical systems behave. I give a simple example, right? When we build scalable systems, we know that one of the worst things you can do is put a synchronization point. Because you know, synchronization means something happens at the same time. If two things have to happen at the same time, one has to wait for the other, it's inevitable. Like a high throughput system, waiting is probably not what you want your system to do. What is the organizational analogy? We know, we all know it extremely well. It's called the meeting. Yeah. And when does the meeting happen? Maybe next week, maybe in two weeks, maybe after a person's vacation. It's a organizational synchronization point. And just like this kills the throughput in your technical system, it also kills the throughput in an organization. If you, if you need to make an important decision and the organizational culture is such that a meeting is needed, yeah, and the meeting involves some important people who are not available and the meeting happens in three weeks, you just lost three weeks and your throughput is horrible. So in the end, while the role of the architect has broadened a lot, I'm convinced that you know, the way we think, the way our brains work to do good systems architecture also applies to organizations. So I think it's a great step for an architect to, to move more into that world because the way your brain works already equips you very well to do so. And hence, I would really like to encourage the architects to, to go and do that and to look more broadly at system architecture. It sounds fantastic. So, uh, Gregor, uh, a lot of what you're espousing is change in the digital environment and, and being able, having the capacity to adapt and move quickly. Is, is writing books a, uh, a, a valuable way to get information out in this day and age? That's a that's a very good question. I guess traditionally books are associated with taking a long time, and by the time the book comes out, you know the information might already be be aged or irrelevant. Interestingly, the digital transformation hasn't stopped from the way books are published as well. So when I thought about writing a book about digital transformation, I was wondering would it actually be appropriate 
to make this as a print book which takes a while to come out just like you described and in the end I decided to self-publish the book and these days you have, have many great platforms to do so so in the end the way you write a book becomes much more in tune with the way the digital world works you can publish parts of the book before it's even finished and get get feedback cycles right and that that's what i've done in the end i started publishing this on on leanpub on this platform right and basically these days you can have a book with your readers before you even done writing and i think that exactly reflects the the spirit of of the digital world so i would say yes writing books is still very much relevant but yeah write them in a slightly different way apply what you learned from the digital world to the way you write books yeah a true uh, a true adoption and espousal of the agile technologies or agile methodologies that that improve our code improve any um aspect of exchanging information and knowledge and uh, the book is available on LeanPub, uh, self-published, as you had mentioned. Um, I would encourage listeners to, to read it. I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure again. This has been Brian Ranero for Software Engineering Radio. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening. <laughs>